Amen. Take your copy of God's Word and turn with me once again in this season to 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. Continue our journey through this New Testament book of Holy Scripture. 2 Peter 3, verses 1 through 9. Hear the word of the living God. Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. This is the word of the living God, and we say thanks be to God. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray now. Living Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray that in this brief time of the proclamation of your word, your name would be glorified, that it would be hallowed here in our midst, that Christ, the great Savior and Redeemer, would be pointed to, that he would be savored, that we would run to him by faith alone, that you would convict, lead, and guide us, we ask. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There are a variety of experiences in the human life wherein the timing of events is important. Just over the last few months, I've had occasion to do a little more traveling than I normally do. And of course, you're waiting on planes and trains and other kinds of things. And you might be standing there thinking to yourself, the sign says that the train is supposed to be here by now, but it's not. Or you're sitting in an airport realizing that everyone has told you that the plane will be taking off at a particular period of time and it doesn't. We live in our day with lots of questions about the timing of things. In Peter's day, the timing of things was one thing that led to the false teachers rising up and questioning the very truth of God's word. The timing. It hasn't happened Yet, surely, it will likely not happen. The timing of the return of Jesus Christ, as we've mentioned before, is really the central theme of this book as it relates to the error of the false teachers. The timing of the return of Christ. Christ. 
And as we consider the timing of the return of Christ, it is these false teachers who make the argument that Jesus is not going to return. Now we're seeing in chapter 3 that very central issue. So let's look at it. I want us to consider this passage of Scripture in three parts or under three headings. The first is the reminder. This is not really that original to me. That's what Peter says. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. By way of reminder. So the first theme that we see is that Peter is reminding the individuals. This is the reminder, if you will. He says in verse 1 that this is his second epistle. We are, of course, meant to understand that 1 Peter, as we call it, is the first. And 1 and 2 Peter were written because... Peter wanted to stir up the minds of his readers. Now think about this. They already knew something, but even in the knowing, they needed to be regularly reminded. He says as much, stir up your minds by way of reminder. We have to have these reminders in the Christian life. And Peter says that these reminders serve to stir up the believers. He's writing to believers. He wants these believers to be stirred up, not to remain static, not to remain cold, not to remain unmoving in the faith, but to be stirred up. But notice what he says. I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. That word pure could be translated pure or good or right. You see, as believers, our minds have been renewed. They have been set on the path that is pure and good and right. And those very renewed minds need regular reminders through the word. The stirring up of our minds is a great theme of the scriptures. How is your mind regularly stirred up by the scriptures? I would submit to you that the chief way in the scriptures that we see our minds stirred up by the word of God is through the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments or the ordinances, for therein the word is made plain to our senses. And then secondarily, we go throughout our week meditating on the word such that believers can be described in other New Testament letters as singing the word, making melody with the word of God. But you know, in the Old Testament, we see this idea as well. And one of the themes that we see there is the theme of meditating on the scriptures. Let me just take a moment and be very, very practical. Meditating on the scriptures, it does involve thinking over what we've heard preached. It does involve memorizing the scriptures. But it also involves thinking on the themes of scripture. When we're at stoplights, when we're preparing meals, When we're filling up the gas tank and we've got five minutes and a thought comes to our mind, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not according to the law but according to the Spirit. We begin to think on that. What does it mean that I, standing here today, am under no condemnation? Well, it means that Christ has taken my condemnation. He has taken the penalty for sin, which means that I am received 
by a loving father. And we begin to chew on, to meditate on the scripture. You see, the word stirs up our pure and renewed minds. And Peter's writing of this letter and the former letter serve that purpose. Being reminded of things that we know, and meditating on them, chewing on them. But notice what he says in verse 2, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. What is referenced here? Well, the revealed word of the Old and the New Testaments alike. The writings of the Spirit-inspired prophets and the commandments, which would be writings of the Spirit-inspired New Testament apostles. We are to be stirred up by the Scripture. Notice, he places the inspired words of the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles on the same plane. Scripture is moving toward one great goal and end, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The saving of sinners unto a triune God. The Old Testament prepares the way Christ accomplishes the work and his apostles. Then, upon that foundation, plant the church, which will remain until he takes it home. So this is the reminder. I want to remind you of what you know, that your minds, your pure minds, may be stirred up. That the words of the prophets and the words of the apostles regularly stir you up. That's the reminder. But then he gives us, secondly, the reason. The reason. Look at verse 3. He says this, knowing this first. So he does want the reminder to come through his word. The word of God. But there's a particular reason in Peter's mind why we need the reminder. Verse 3. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? The reason, then, is that scoffers who deny his coming will begin to teach. This is the reason. Now, if you've been journeying with us through this sermon series in Second Peter thus far, you will note that this is not the first time that we've pointed to this. This has been the main error that the false teachers base their false teaching on, that scoffers will come, false teachers will come, and they will deny his coming. Who are these false teachers? Well, we're not entirely sure. One early church father made the argument that the false teachers that Peter had in mind were some kinds of Gnostics. But however we identify them, they were teachers who arose from within the congregations, who denied the timing and the reality because of it, the return of Christ. And so this then leads these false teachers to say that there will not be judgment of sins. And as we can see, they live in those sins and encourage others to live in those sins. Just look what he says. He says this, For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget. This they willfully forget. 
by the word of God the heavens were of old. They are willfully forgetting the word. And this then becomes Peter's theme, doesn't it? We've seen in chapter 2 that because of the idea of the delay of Christ's coming, that the timing hasn't occurred. This then led them to live lives that were full of sin and teaching others to sin. But their argument, that is, the false teachers, is seen in the sentence that I just read, the latter half of verse 4. For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Notice their argument. Their argument was that since the death of the patriarchs of the Old Testament, there has been no cataclysmic intervention by God. Things have continued on course for century after century after century. So why are you waiting for some cataclysmic occurrence? So Peter gives us the reminder that the word may be used to stir up our minds. The reason is because there will be those who deny this word. Because to them, what Christ has promised, what the word has promised, has not happened. Well, then that takes us to our third heading and the focus, really, of this passage of Scripture, and that is the response. What is the response? Notice that Peter says that these scoffers neglect to consider God's word. They neglect to consider God's word. They call it into question. They, quote, willfully forget it. They choose to not consider it. But notice what Peter's response is. They say, well, since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. But then notice what Peter says, verse 5. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Now, that is a long set of words, but there's a common theme, the word of God. The word of God. How do we see Peter's response? They deny the word of God, but they willfully forget what? That the creation of the world was accomplished. How? By the word of God. That the flood of judgment came, how? By the word of God. That the current world is being preserved by what? By the word of God. And the word of God promises what? There will be coming judgment. So to those who willfully forget the word of God, Peter says the response is the word of God. Now let's look briefly at what he means. It's interesting. He talks about the earth and water. And there may be a variety of reasons why Peter is doing this. Turn with me for just a moment to Psalm 33. Psalm 33 and verse 6. There we read this simple statement. Psalm 33, 6. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. Now, this creation of the world, Peter then describes in a way that I think we have to be careful to get 
too involved in the material details because we may get stuck and miss the forest for the trees. But here's what I mean. Notice what he says. That by the word of God, the heavens were of old. That's the creation, Psalm 33, 6. And the earth standing out of water and in the water. So now we've got the separation of land from water in some way. Of course, we read of that in Genesis. Don't get too focused on water and earth except to note what comes next. By which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with what? Water. God separated the dry land from the water by the word of his power. And to bring judgment on ungodly unbelievers, what did he do? He brought the water right back onto the earth. With a word. The very God who created all things brought judgment with the very element that he had created, water. And then Peter moves us to the present, doesn't he? The world created, then flooded by the word. Look at verse 7. Now we have, if you will, the second set. Verse 7, but the heavens and earth which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for what? Judgment. Creation, judgment. Creation, judgment. What does it mean in verse 7 when Peter says that the world is preserved by the word of God? Well, we could think of that wonderful passage, couldn't we, in the book of Hebrews can turn there if you like, but Hebrews chapter 1, what the persons of the Trinity do, they do together, but many times in Scripture, a particular work of the triune God terminates upon one particular member of the Trinity. It's not to think that the Father does his set of tasks, and the Son does his set of tasks, and the Spirit does his set of tasks, and they're like three separate beings kind of operating just with a wonderful harmony. No, the triune God upholds the word, the world by his word. But notice here in Hebrews, it's a particular person of the Trinity that is mentioned Hebrews 1.1, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who, being the brightness of his glory and the expressed image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now think about this, boys and girls. Jesus, fully God and fully man, is the second person of the Trinity. He is the eternal son. And in Hebrews chapter 1, we are told something about our bodies, about the trees outside, about the flowers in our mommy's gardens, about the food that we will eat for lunch. All of it is held together by something. And in science class, you will learn of the wonderful things that our God has created as secondary means to hold them all together. Elements and atoms and protons and neutrons and electrons. 
But the chief thing that we learn in Scripture that holds all of those things together, that causes the birds to fly, that causes the fish to swim, right now in the deepest parts of the ocean of the world, it is the word of Christ. Not one breath comes in and out of your lungs without the word of King Jesus upholding it. So don't you think, false teacher, for one moment... That by one simple word, judgment cannot come. So again, they willfully forget the word of the prophets and the commandments of the apostles. So Peter says, hey, let's consider the word by the word of God, the simple word of God. All things were created and the floodwaters came. And now in this, if you will, recreated post-flood world, everything is held together by what? The word. But all things are reserved for fire until the day of judgment. The word of God is central. This is his response. But if the people in the church were wondering, yeah, but what about the timing? I mean, these false teachers, they sort of have a little bit of a point. It seems like Jesus has been gone now from us for a generation What about this timing? So to that, his response is this, verse 8. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. A thousand years is as a day to our God. Now, why use this phrase, a thousand years? I think there's a biblical reason that Peter uses it. But brothers down through the ages have also pointed to other ideas alongside that. Here are a couple of examples. Why pick the number a thousand? Athanasius, who lived in the 300s, argued that this phrase was chosen by Peter because this was the amount of time between the temple, its erection and its worship, to Christ. About a thousand years. He says this. This is Athanasius. A thousand years is the time that the temple worship lasted. For from the completion of the temple by Solomon, who built the Lord's house, until it became redundant when Christ died on the cross, is a thousand years. This thousand years is compared to a day or to a watch in the night because everything appeared to be night before the coming of the Savior. For until the sun of righteousness arise, everyone dwelt in ignorance and confusion. Athanasius is saying, it's not just an arbitrary term. Augustine, for his part, in the late 300s, early 400s, argued that this term, a thousand, obviously would be used later. It would have connections to another period of scripture. What? In the book of the Revelation, the millennium. But perhaps... The clearest connection for us to see this phrase, thousand years, is found in the Old Testament book of Psalms. So turn there with me, Psalm 90 and verse 4. Psalm 90 and verse 4. There we read these words. And I think it's likely that Peter, who would have sung these words in a way growing up, had this in view. Psalm 94, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past, and like a watch 
in the night. You see, boys and girls, you and I live in time. We get old. We're born young, but we get old. As soon as one second passes, the next second is, behind, is, is upon us, and then it passes. We are in time, but God is not. God is not bound by time. He's not old. He's not young. God just is. And all things, including time, are created by his very word. And it's almost impossible for us to imagine the thought that God doesn't progress with time, that he doesn't kind of sit. You ever thought to yourself, what was God doing before he created everything? Just for billions and billions of years. And I know what we mean. I've thought that. But that's not our God. God wasn't just sitting around as time passed and then decided to make something. You see, God simply is. He just is pure being. And so Peter says to him, a, a thousand years, it's, it's, it's like a day. And a day, it's, it's like a thousand years. But his point is, verse 9, the Lord will not forget his promise. Another early church father wrote these words. Just as a man works for a day and afterwards remembers what he has done, so God does not forget even after a thousand years. It may be a long time before he gets round to punishing sinners, but when he does, he uses his power in a single instant. Now, Peter could stop there. Hey, I want to remind you of some things from the Old Testament and from the commandments of the apostles. You need to be reminded of these things because scoffers are going to come and they're going to deny the word of God. So let me remind you of the word of God. And so his conclusion could have been, point of application, don't forget his promise. But he goes one step deeper for every believer reading this letter. Notice what he says. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but, and here it is, is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You see, Peter's application is not only don't forget the promise. His application is the seeming delay has been so that every elect one will find repentance. The patience and long-suffering of God, humanly speaking, the delay, standing here looking at our watches, when is he going to come? Hearing the world around us say, he's not coming. Where is this coming of Christ? This seeming delay is not a delay in God. God is long-suffering, and he is not willing that any of us, we'll talk about that in a moment, should not find repentance. The delay is for repentance. Thomas Schreiner, writing on this passage, says this, quote, The false teachers use God's patience as an argument against God when it should lead them to repentance. Isn't that what Paul says in Romans 2? That God's kindness is what? Meant to lead us to repentance. We look as time-bound creatures and we are hearing the words of these false teachers, Gnostics or whoever they may be. Where is his coming? What ought we to do? 
Yes, A, we are to not forget his promise. Don't do what they do and say his word is not true. But B, how are we to apply it to our lives? Every single day that passes by and King Jesus hasn't returned is a day that people all around the world who are called by his name respond in faith and repentance and are gloriously united to him. Think of your day of salvation. As it were, in some sense, the delay of God involved what? You, sinner, coming to Christ. And those who do not have faith, those who are not elect, they will use that very thing, the delay in Christ's coming. He's not coming. To cause you to question your faith. When Peter says, hey, God is long-suffering. Think how many tribes have heard the gospel. Think how many churches have been planted. Think how many missionaries have been sent. Because God has not said, now is the time. You think that there aren't legions of angels in heaven ready at the beck and call, we'll see this tonight by God's grace, at the beck and call of King Jesus to come down and stamp out all evil? You think that the holy ones aren't ready? You think, as we read Revelation, that the martyrs are not sitting there going, Lord, how long? How long, O Lord, till you avenge us? What do we see? Steady, unchanging God. The delay is that God wants what? All to come to repentance. Who is this all? Who is this all? The text says, not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. I would submit to you that context, as is always the case, is key. It's very crucial. What's the context of this? Notice the second part of the verse. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. What is the first part of this verse? The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward who? Us. Us. Our interpretation of this passage is aided by the us directly before it. God is not willing that any of his elect should fail to repent and perish. This would be speaking to God's secret will of decree. God has decreed all things that come to pass, including every single soul that will respond in faith and repentance down through the ages. And God's movement seemingly through time, as if he were bound by time, we know he's not, involves every single one of his sheep coming to repentance. Now, we need to say this, in keeping with the whole of Scripture, there is a sense in which God does not delay in his patience for all sinners as the gospel goes forward. I want to press us for just a moment. I believe very much that Peter is speaking here about Christians, the elect, coming to repentance. I think it would be improper to picture God as delaying in hopes that some unknown fact to him occurs. Well, maybe if I delay longer, more people will choose my son. It's, 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 not, it's not that. I think this is a settled and steady reality. But we do have to be careful how we speak about God. 
For instance, Exodus 34, 6 said that, says that God is a God that is slow to anger. God is known as one who is slow to anger. The Lord, the Lord, merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. That's, that's how God makes his name known. Turn there. It's worth seeing. Exodus 34. Exodus 34. Exodus 34, verse 6. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Okay, so what's being proclaimed? The name of the Lord. Verse 6. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord. Yahweh, Yahweh, God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. You want to meditate on a passage of scripture this week? Meditate on Exodus 34, 6. I worship the triune God who is known as a God of what? Mercy and grace and long-suffering, who abounds in goodness and truth, who keeps mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions, but who will by no means cleanse the guilty. Clear them without full atonement. So even though Peter says that the delay is about repentance of the elect, We do have a God who is known as a God who is slow to anger. And Ezekiel 18.32. Ezekiel 18.32. Ezekiel 18.32. The word of God there says this. Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, says the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions so that iniquity will not be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions which you have committed and get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why should you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore, turn and live. I want to speak to two different individuals today, to the individual who's sitting here, and you now just have recently come to understand that there is a God and that you're a sinner and that that God has sent the eternal Son to put on flesh, fully God and fully man, Jesus, and walk among us and die for your sins. I want you to see that as it were, attributing some kind of emotion to God, as it were, God's heart Is not a heart that takes pleasure in the death of the wicked, but calls people to repentance. That the gospel is a gospel which is given for all to hear. Some will respond, but it's a gospel that we should trumpet. And so cling there, new believer. That your God is a God who is full of mercy, who wants to save sinners, that you... And that I are wicked sinners. We're wicked sinners. We've broken God's holy law. But he has done what? In his mercy, sent his son to be the full and complete satisfaction for our sins. Look to Christ. Love Christ. See Christ as the complete savior that he is. But I also want to speak to the one in the room who knows theology well. You could quote Calvin. You could quote the Puritans. You love dabbling in the writings of Reformation theology. You love calling yourself a Calvinist. So I'm with you. I'm with you. But but think on this. 
Don't be so bold in your declaration of God's secret decree of election that you don't also see how he names himself in Scripture. A God who is merciful and a God who does not delight in the death of the wicked. You know, an area where many of us need to be sanctified is that in our singing and saying of the imprecatory psalms about world leaders around the world, we see them fall. And we begin to delight in the death of sinners. It's just that our God doesn't. By no means am I calling into question God's secret decree. Not all will come. Only those that the Spirit regenerates will respond in faith and repentance. In fact, faith is a gift, isn't it? Not everyone has faith. But when we have verses that talk about God's delay, not willing that any should perish, just meditate on that. I have a God who acts in such a way that my repentance was sure. We ought to see that what is primarily in view in this passage is that while false teachers scoff at God's delay and say, where is his promise of coming? We ought to rejoice. Because it meant that we were brought to repentance. You see, I think, I think it was around about December 6th of 1985 when the gospel first dropped, as it were, into my soul. I think that's the date. I'm not real sure. Many of you can relate to that. You think you know the time, the day, but not all of us were saved like the Apostle Paul. He knew <laughs> this was the day. I think that's when the day was. God and his mercy, God and his grace, in some sense, acted in a way That before the end, this sinner was brought to repentance and faith. This is your God. Don't let the world take the wonderful mercy of God, turn it on its head and cause you to question, is he worthy? Rather, with Peter, say everything that he does is perfect. Let's pray. Living God, we pray that you would cause your word to take root in our heart once again, that we not only see your promise and not to question it, but that we also see that you are not willing that any of your elect ones should perish, that you're a God who trumpets your own name as a God of mercy and graciousness slow to anger and abounding in covenant love. Oh, living God, may we meditate on that truth this week. May that stir up our pure minds by way of reminder this week. We pray for any who are here who do not know Christ, that they may see that he is the Christ spoken of here in Scripture who will save any who come to him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.